0: Thank you for joining our podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. Stay tuned as together we'll study God's Word. Let's go before the Lord. Again, we are in His presence, but let me take us audibly there. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you so much for uh, bringing worship out of us. Thank you, Lord, that uh, we already have reoriented ourselves to your reality, to eternity. Thank you for the community that's gathered. Thank you for the word that's already been proclaimed through song in Isaiah six. Thank you for Bibles open, hearts yielded. God, unless you reveal who you are, this is just all religious activity for us, and we're not here for us, we're here for you, at your bidding, at your command. So please, Jesus, I know you'll do this, you always do, but emerge from the pages of scripture, from Isaiah six, let us see you, let us tremble with Isaiah, let us, let us experience the sensational, sensory encounter he had with you in your throne. We need it, Lord. We need it. We exalt you. We love you. Speak to us in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, grab your message notes. Hold on to this. We'll get to this at the end. Open your Bibles. And and by the way, in two weeks, we're going to start a series through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to Uh, almost go verse by verse through the whole book. And so I want to encourage you to start bringing your Bibles. If you're not in that um, uh, habit and you call PCC home, come with your Bible, okay? Start next week. Get a little practice week, okay? But then when we jump into 1 Peter, I want you to write that thing up and use it because it's the sword, right? Sword of the Spirit. Bam. Okay. Awesome. Isaiah 6, you there? Here we go. It's amazing how the urgent consumes us and distracts us from the ultimate. We live in that tension, right? The urgent, our surroundings, our circumstances consume us and distract us away from the ultimate. I asked this question last week, but I'm going to ask it again. Who remembers Y2K? Yeah, for those of you under 30, let me explain a little bit what took place with the year 2000 quickly approaching programmers feared that software would mistake the year 2000 in 1999 the year 2000 for the year 1900 causing computers to crash not just personal computers but government computers utilities bank computers to crash and a myriad of theories about what would happen popped up in public there'd be terrorist attacks planes would fall from the skies a major stock market crash And as the 90s came to a close, apocalyptic hysteria rose. This wasn't just a marginalized thing. Nationally, the U.S. spent more than $100 billion to conduct tests and make repairs. Locally, people stockpiled cans, goods, waters. Even Time magazine published a cover article and had a Y2K survival checklist advising readers to gather flashlights, candles, fill your car with gas, take out a few days worth of cash because ATMs will go down. Then we held our breaths and watched our clocks as New Year's Eve 20 years ago came. In reality, a small number of issues arose, but what seems so urgent, you heard it, we laugh about now. It's amazing how the urgent can consume us and overtake what's ultimate. That's reality. That's an axiom of life. And I'm just curious. This isn't a judgmental question. This is a relating question. What is the urgent that's consuming you right now? It's a weight on you. We have a high school senior. Her urgent is her college application process we have a college senior, I'm about to get a raise come, come May. Her urgent is what happens after college is done. Maybe for you it's work deadlines, family challenges, impeachment proceedings. 49er game today seems urgent for us. I wonder if God has a message for his people when the urgent is overwhelming. During the eighth century BC, ancient Judah enjoyed a time of relative peace, thanks to the steady leadership, the 52-year reign of a king named Uzziah. Uzziah was far from perfect, yet in, the, uh, in his presence, under his leadership, he kept Israel safe for 52 years. And then Uzziah died, and the urgent overtook a nation. What would happen to the people of Judah now that their king is gone? Uzziah's throne was empty, but as we'll see at the end of this message, God's throne was still occupied. Uzziah's reign had ended, but as we'll see at the end of the message, God's reign hadn't. Uzziah's voice was silent, God's voice thundered. God was alive, God is alive. God was on the throne, God is on the throne. The ultimate is worthy of our worship, and church, you've done that well for the first 40 minutes we've been together. In the midst of the circumstantial urgent, Isaiah encountered God. It gave him a ballast, if you will, to weather the storms of his circumstances. I want to walk with you and me. I want to take us into that experience with Isaiah. I don't want us just read it. I want you to experience it with me. I've been praying the Spirit of God would do that. And answer this question, what does an encounter with God look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Open to page two of your notes, and let's talk that through. It starts with a God quake. It starts with a God quake. Isaiah six, verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, uh, the Hebrew word there means burning ones. Uh, These are angelic beings closest to the throne room of God and his holiness uh, displayed through his glory, we'll do that in a minute, was so palpable they were literally on fire and never burned out. They are the burning ones. Each had six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another endlessly. What were they calling, church? Let's say it together. Holy, holy, holy. Now in Hebrew, uh, magnitude, the way the he, this was written in Hebrew, uh, the way uh, magnitude is expressed is through repetition, Uh, If you're a caring person and you were an ancient Hebrew, it would be written, you're caring. If you're really caring, it'd say you're caring, caring. It'd just repeat the words, um, giving magnitude to it. This is the only place in the Hebrew scriptures where any trait is repeated three times. God isn't just holy. He's not just really holy. He is in the superlative, in a realm that is unlike anything on earth or in the heavens, These burning ones aren't holy like God. Only God is holy, 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 is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his what? Glory. Now at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Isaiah comes into the temple and he sees the Lord high and exalted. Actually, what he sees is his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Again, in the Hebrew language, glory is a word that literally means heaviness or weightiness. It means weight. When talking about God's glory, the the author and what Isaiah experiences, there is a weightiness that compared to my circumstances, which in this time we're really weighty, maybe your circumstances are too, that's the human condition. He suddenly gets reoriented to reality and he says, oh my goodness, I have come across a weight bigger than anything I've ever experienced in my life. Nothing compared to anything else but God matters in this moment. That's Isaiah's experience. You know this, if you drop an object heavier than water into water, there's what? A displacement of the water. I didn't learn that in physics. I learned that at Mount Hermon Christian Camp because every Thursday during summer family camp, they have the Big Dad Belly Flop Contest. It's amazing. It's amazing what takes place and the displacement of water when Big Dads jump into the pool is unbelievable. Why is that? Because some of these, well, all of the dad's glory Is weightier than the water. And so the water quakes. So Isaiah goes from believing that his circumstances were weighty and consuming him into the presence of God who is ultimately the weight that should consume him. Isaiah goes from uh, believing that God is a concept to seeing God as a reality in an experience. See, I believe that day when Isaiah walked into the worship service, he believed that God is a concept, but he never expected to encounter the true living God. Humbly, I want to ask this question: Have you expected that this morning? Was that your expectation? Coming and gathering in worship? What's the difference between God as a concept and God as an encounter? It's a matter of glory. See, God as a concept is lighter than you. God as a concept doesn't displace you. He won't quake you. You shape that God. He doesn't shape you. The God concept you've created would never disagree with you. He would never challenge your deeply held beliefs. He actually exists to comply with them. That's the God concept. And God forbid that he would change your behavior. Because the God concept would never want to make you holy like the true God. James chapter 2, verse 19, it's in your notes. This might surprise some of you, but even demons believe in the God concept. Look what Jesus said, or Jesus' brother, James said, you believe that there's one God, good. Even demons believe that. And shudder. They shudder, but their lives don't change. They shudder, but they don't let the God concept rearrange their theology, rearrange their priorities, rearrange and make them do things they wouldn't naturally do. Isaiah is about to be converted from a God conceptor to a God encounterer, and he'll never be the same. That's how the kingdom of God works. That's how the kingdom comes, through men and women who've encountered God not just men and women who have them as a concept. And friends, the God encounters the way of human flourishing. Jesus didn't come to earth to tie you up in a straitjacket. I read this this morning. He came to set you free and set me free. When you actually experience the presence of the true God that gives way in your life to his glory, his weight pushes out the sin. Things you've always believed, believed very deeply are changed. For the better, by his word, because God's character carries more weight and glory than your own preferences and your own previously held beliefs. See, a God encounter, instead of God fitting into your agenda, are you ready? God becomes your agenda. Everything you look at life through a God lens. God, how can I bring this glory? How can your kingdom come through me? Not just Sunday for an hour, but every day of the week. Experiencing God changes your priority, your agenda, your finances, your view of people, your relationships. That's the God encounter. That's what this church is built on. We're built on people like you who've encountered God and are taking Jesus in unexpected ways, in unexpected places. It's beautiful. God was a concept to Isaiah. His circumstances were much more weighty and they held way more glory in the moment. But when God became a reality, here's what he did and here's what he wants to do through us. He deconstructed Isaiah's deeply held beliefs. It's like Humpty Dumpty. Isaiah's about to have a great fall. Has that happened to you? Has God deconstructed you? your values, the way in which you look at life, is God contradicting you in any area? What do you do in times like that? You certainly don't throw your brains out, but you lean in to the glory and the lordship of Jesus Christ, and you let him, through his revelation, build you into the person he had in mind when he created you in the first place. Friends, I'm gonna say something pretty important. Being out of touch with the reality of God means you're out of touch with reality. This world is just an illusion apart from encountering God. So the first thing that he has is uh, he encounters a God quake. Everything's shaking. And you thought God was a covenanter. No, he's a quaker. (laughs) You like that? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Sorry. I feel the love. Feel the love. The God quake leads to somewhere, though. It leads to a self quake. And this is what makes all the difference. Page three, verse five. Isaiah uses a term he's really familiar with. This is prophet speak. He says, "Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. Please feel this. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of these burning ones, one of these seraphim, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the tongs of the altar. And with it, feel the sting and the pain of this. He touched my lips. When's the last time you sucked on a piece of glowing charcoal? He touched my mouth, said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Do not lose your mind with me. I mean, stick with me on this, okay? Isaiah experienced something searingly beautiful. You know what he experienced? It's not what he experienced, it's who he experienced. Jesus. Uh, look down on the bottom of page three. Look at John. 12 these are the words of jesus himself our john says this isaiah said this because he saw jesus's glory and spoke about him isaiah is in the throne room of god and he sees jesus himself in all his holiness and he says i am undone What is holiness? Holiness is not just the, the Hebrew word means independence, God has no needs. Uh, It's not just the absence of evil. Holiness, I'd like you to think of it this way, is the pure abundance of good. The pure abundance of good. I think it's gotten a bad rap in our day. Unless you think it has a bad rap in your life, don't you wanna be a part of a holy community where you're never objectified? by your age, or gender, or skin color, or socioeconomic status, where you're you're valued just by nature of, you bear the image of God. Holy communities don't need locks on doors. They don't fear. Holy communities are empowering, not destructive. We all wanna be a part of that. I want my daughters to date holy men. I want my wife to date a holy man (laughs) and be married to one. See, we all see the value of holiness. Why is it that when we hear the word holiness, we think, oh, gosh, that seems like no fun. No, holiness is not just the absence of evil. It's the pure, overwhelming, infinite presence of good. This is what Isaiah comes face to face with. How breathtaking is God's holiness I can't tell you, but these seraphim can. Look at them, look at them, look in your word. They're continually saying, back then and to this day, repeating endlessly, holy, holy, holy. In other words, they're fascinated with God's holiness. They love his holiness. They can't get enough of his holiness. They are continually adoring his holiness. It's, it's not a repetition of the old, it's, it's a fascination with something new. After they get the word holiness out, they see a new fresh revelation of God telling them. It's like, oh my gosh, holiness, oh my gosh, holiness, oh my gosh, holy, <gasps> look, holy. It's not like a repetition. Holy, holy is what we we're created for, holy, no. They are blown away each second for an eternity by a new, fresh revelation of his holiness. Ah, it makes me amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Have you ever had a breathtaking experience? Come on, I know you have. Identify that for a minute. For me, I was thinking about this, had a lot of time to think about this. Who knows about King's Canyon? It's actually the deepest canyon in the United States. Uh, and it's just four hours away near Yosemite Valley. valley. It, it borders a, a camp, the largest youth camp in America called Hume Lake. And there was a time when I spent a lot of time up at Hume. And I would get on my mountain bike and uh, from Hume go about 12 miles on a dirt road. And then take, a, all I knew it was Road 7 and go to Road 7. And I, I'd go through a valley and came across this, this um this group of, of redwood trees that were so big, it took my breath away. Overlooking this deep canyon that was so beautiful, it took my breath away. I would just sit there and all I could hear is the wind. I can bring myself there right now. And it, it, was, it was literally breathtaking. It, it, it put me in my place. I would look up at these redwood trees in sheer silence, just hearing the wind come through the trees and I would think how small I am. Not in a deprecating way, but in a a way that gave me my, my true sense in this eternal vast universe. Isaiah's coming into a breathtaking experience that makes that minuscule by comparison. But that's what worship does. It puts us in our place. Look in your notes, Psalm 96, verse 9. It says, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And then what should we do? Tremble before him all the earth. The seraphim are adoring and serving God. Listen to me. Not on the basis of what they get out of it. They're not doing this for them. They're worshiping God simply because of who he is. He's so unbelievably holy. It's pulling worship out of them. They can't help but worship knowing what they're experiencing. For the seraphim, his holiness isn't useful. It's beautiful. But for Isaiah, his holiness is painful. Stick with me. Verse 5, he says, Woe to me. Woe is prophets speak. It means curse, be damned. Uh, Prophets used it all the time. Cursed are you. Cursed are you. And for the first time ever, the only time Isaiah uses this for himself is right here. He says, I'm cursed. God was a concept, and now I've encountered the true living God. I am undone. I don't deserve to live. I am ruined, I am undone, literally I am dismantled. For I'm a man, he goes right to his, his, um, his profession and what the place of cursing, he was an orator by trade and a writer, we'll see. And he says, he goes right to there, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips. What's going on here? Now we understand this again, all I can do is take the infinite and relate it to the human experience. We get this in a temporal sense. Some of us, uh, name your area of greatness that you really respect. And when you come in the presence of someone who is a standout in that field, you begin to tingle a little bit. You become a little bit undone. Uh, five years ago, I was at Lucky's on Woodside Road. You know where I'm talking about? And I was in the self-serve checkout line and just, you know, stupidly on my phone. I looked up and in front of me was Jim Plunkett, like the quarterback, Jim Plunkett. And I was a Raider fan growing up. Uh, you know, Dad and I had season tickets. I saw that guy play, Super Bowl MVP, Heisman Trophy winner. That's the Heisman pose, whatever, Heisman <laughs> Trophy winner. I was undone in a small sense in his presence. I so respected his, his performance on the field. I, I, do I say hi, do I not say hi? I don't know. I, and finally I tapped him and he turned around like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Gary. I said I was a kid that watched you play. You gave me so many great memories. And he was very gracious to me. Okay, that's just with a human being. Isaiah is before the God of the universe. Rabbinic tradition states that Isaiah was from a royal family. Isaiah's dad was the brother, not of King Uzziah, but of a king. He was one of the elites in Judaism. And we know about Isaiah from the book of Isaiah. He was an artistic, intellectual, literary genius. And if you, if you rebut me, go ahead and write a book. And 3,000 years later, if we're still talking about your book, I'll call you a genius too. Okay? But in the presence of God, he's reoriented. That's what worship does. It orients you accurately. All my people are unclean, and I'm just one of them, he's saying. Even my lips, even the best part of me is unclean. It's flawed. It's wrong. It's selfish. It's disoriented. It's twisted. It's distorted. I think we underestimate, my friends, what theologians call the total depravity of human beings. What he's going to encounter and experience is that he's more broken than he realized. He's more desperate than you could ever imagine. Look at what God does next. As soon as he confesses his sin, an angel flies toward him with the fire of God in his hand. And what would Isaiah have thought then? Uh, In the Old Testament, whenever fire comes from heaven, it's a a sign of God's wrath, of his judgment. And imagine the fire is coming straight towards Isaiah. And here's where he's going to learn that God's throne is not just a throne of wrath. Are you ready? But it's a throne of grace. The fire goes to his lips. The point at which he confessed, right? He confessed, I am a man of what? Unclean. And so the fire goes right to his lips. It must have stung, but almost immediately, instead of consuming him, he realizes he's been cleansed. Look at this, amazing. You think there's no grace in the Old Testament? Look, your guilt is what? Taken away. Your sin is what? Atone for. Only Jesus can do that. Track with me. The second after Isaiah's oriented, he realizes uh, he realized, realizing that he's more wicked than he ever dared believe. He's now reoriented, hearing he's more valued than he would ever dare hope. What happened to Isaiah? He's deconstructed and reconstructed on the spot. It's your big idea on page one. He realizes he's more broken than he ever dared believe, but he's more loved than he could ever dare hope through the grace of God. Friends, that's what gives you the ballast. That one line gives you the ballast to make the ultimate have more weight than the urgent. That there is a God of the universe who has cleansed you, who has promised you as you follow him to secure your eternity. You're going to make it to the finish line. And if you can secure that massive experience of removing your sin and putting it on the cross of Jesus, he can take care of what seems ultimate to you in the moment. When you have a ballast of realizing, I am serving a God, I've handed my life over and worship a God, and I realize I am more broken than I could ever imagine. But through him, I am more loved than I ever dared hope. That's the ballast that keeps the ultimate the ultimate. Even when circumstances betray that. That leads to the third point. The God quake. I'm sorry, the world quake. The world quake. This is amazing to me. So After Isaiah is cleansed through his confession, through the grace of God, he hears a conversation happening amongst the Trinity. They're saying amongst themselves, this is is so good. The kingdom's got to move from this throne room to planet earth. Who will we send? Who will go for us? They're not looking at Isaiah saying, will you go for us? This isn't a, a command to Isaiah. This is just a conversation happening. We're at at the core of the universe. This is the heart of God still. Do you hear it? God's asking us, in the midst of us, asking who will go for us. Who's going to go for us in Redwood City, in Burlingame, in Portola Valley, in San Carlos? Who's going to go for us to San Francisco and bring the kingdom of God with them? Who will we send? Now, frankly, if I was Isaiah in that moment, honestly, can I just be honest for a minute? I would literally just sit there and go, boy, um, it, I'll, I'll clean up my language. It stinks for the world because I'm not leaving this. This is so good. I've just been cleansed. I've just been purged. I'm staying here where it's safe. But see, that's not how the kingdom works. That's heaven. That's heaven. We'll get that one day. Until then, our identity, we are sent by God. And here's what he says Here am I. Send me. The word here am I, I've taught you this word before. It's my favorite Old Testament word. It's the title of the message on page one. Literally, it says, without condition. Without condition. Uh, my daughter, uh, a, my fourth daughter went to a youth camp, a father-daughter camp actually. It changed her life. And uh, the key to it was they're really big on serving students. They had this concierge desk. I've never been to youth camp with a concierge desk. And uh, over it, there's a sign that says this, the answer's yes. Now what's your question? That captures Hanani. Isaiah hasn't even been tasked. And if you read the book of Isaiah, it's not a pleasant task. But he says, I'll go. Here am I, without condition. In essence, God's saying, we got some work to do. Isaiah says, I'm in, without hearing the work. It begs the question for me, and I want to give it to you too. What conditions do you place on your service for the Savior? Remember, Isaiah's talking to Jesus here. Lo- we love being a servant, the concept, until we're treated like servants. We don't love that. The way the kingdom advances, kingdom come, how is that prayer going to be answered, my friends? How are we going to be the answer to the Lord's prayer there? By taking off the conditions. By serving in places that's hard to serve. At times where it's hard to serve. Where God gets the credit and we don't. We might even get worse than credit. We may get discredit. Scorn for serving him. See, do you see where Isaiah's come? And I got to land this plane. I could be with you for an hour in this text. We've finished where Isaiah's needs are no longer as weighty as God's. The glory has shifted. Have you seen that in eight verses? Isaiah's glory is not as weighty as God's glory. Jesus is no longer a concept to Isaiah. He is a reality and all Isaiah wants is to join him in bringing the kingdom to earth. Friends, I'm not asking you to try harder after this message. We need to trust more. We need to ask God for this kind of revelation from him and then in humility posture our souls. And so we can respond with worship, a life of worship before him. God moved from being a concept to becoming a reality to Isaiah through worship. Final question, and then we'll go to prayer. Which is he to you? Is God a concept to you? And you hold the ultimate weight. You hold the ultimate authority. You make the commands of God and tell him what he must do. Or you abandon him when he doesn't do what you want him to do. Or is God a reality where you say, you get the glory? You use me. This, my friends, is where you grab your card to remind you of our time today. Please hold on to that. And let's go to prayer. Everyone got their card? If you don't, they'll be in the back when you leave. Father, I thank you. Every head bowed, every eye closed, please. Thank you so much for this text. Lord, we're all in a place where we need you. We are desperate for you. Uh, Colossians says, we exist in you, for you, through you. Jesus, you're holding us together at this point. I wanna speak first of all to followers of Christ. You identify as a Christ follower. You've had this experience with God where your sin has been cleansed, you're free want to ask around that here am I, what are the conditions you placed on your service for God? What are the conditions of serving him? I'm not just talking about here on Sundays, that's important. But serving him Monday through Friday. Being known as a servant. What are the conditions? What is the weight that you hold that keeps you from serving him more? Are you willing to surrender that weight and say, here am I? God, in this arena, could be your home, in this relationship, could be with a child, could be with a neighbor, it could be with a spouse. I'm lowering the conditions. Send me as your kingdom ambassador. If you're willing to lower the conditions, just hold up your sign, here am I to the Lord. Hold it up, here am I. You're thinking specifically of an area. Satan's gonna tempt you. That's why I'm having you move physically on this so you remember you have body movement. Here am I, beautiful. Put him down, please. Maybe you don't identify as a follower of Christ and you realize, oh my gosh, God is a concept to me. Having an encounter with Jesus is initiated as we see with Isaiah by Jesus. And he wants to come to you and you have to agree and and the Bible uses the term confess to two things, that you are more broken than you ever realize. Sin has wreaked havoc. Sin just means I'm doing my life my way. I don't care what you think, God. But you're more loved than you could ever dare imagine. Jesus loves you and he's brought you to this point where he says, will you turn over your life to me? Will you trust me to forgive your sin and to give you a life that you've always wanted? If that's you, a simple one-word prayer is the only response we want. Yes. Yes, I am transferring trust from me to you. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, you love me. Yes, your love is greater than my sin. Lord, make me the person you want me to be. If you're praying that, hold up your sign to the Lord and to me, hold it up. Yes, Jesus, I wanna be you. I wanna be who you made me to be. Father, we give you ourselves. Can only think of how powerful a yielded church is in your presence. And we thank you for the, the shoulders that we're standing on. Many of whom are in this room who have yielded And we're experiencing the fruit of that. God, let it be in our generation. We're the yielded ones, not for our glory, but so that your kingdom would come, so that your will would be done here on this peninsula, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment as it is in heaven. No more concept. You're our encounter. You're our reality. We love you, Jesus. Let's just say holy three times together. Holy, holy, holy. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our message podcast here at Peninsula Covenant Church. We would love the opportunity to connect with you more. We are located in Redwood City, California and you can find us online at wearepcc.com. You can also find us Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by simply searching for We Are PCC.